0: to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting their system. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at lnxchk on Twitter. All right. Hi, folks. Welcome. Thanks for joining us this week. Uh, today I'm joined by Kat, who we met in a previous episode. Welcome, Kat! And Dominica DeGrandis is joining us this week. Dominica is currently the principal flow advisor at Tasktop and the author of Making Work Visible. Dominica, welcome to the show. Tell us about yourself and and what what you do and and what's a what's a principal flow advisor?
1: Hey, Mandy. Hi, Kat. So nice to see you. It's been a while. I'm principal flow advisor at Tasktop. Been here for about four and a half years, and uh, I work on a team of other flow advisors. And basically, what I do is help organizations make their work visible, so that they can actually start to see where the bottlenecks are and work to optimize their their throughput, their delivery of value through the value stream, and. It's like value stream, we call it value stream management. Okay. Which is similar to value stream mapping, but it has more of a, you know, we're using live data, capturing live metrics right out of their tool sets. Mm -hmm. So, unlike value stream mapping, which tends to be far and few between and infrequent and more of a static way to go, value stream management is in tended to be done, you know, it's like continuous improvement, continuously looking at your data, making data driven decisions, making that workflow visual, so that we can start to learn what's really going on and do something about it from a experimentation mindset. And I'm loving it. Yeah, because I'm big on making things visible. And then to really to spark these necessary conversations that need to happen. Anytime we can bring another sense to the problem. I mean, vision is the sense that most humans perceive information through. So when we're just talking to try and solve problems, I always want to go out to the whiteboard and Start drawing on it, and, and that's what we used to do, you know, pre-pandemic days. Solving sure. a hard problem, people would get out the napkin and start drawing on it, or you start doodling on the whiteboard. And I think that has been missing lately with a lot of the virtual calls. So that's why I'm still trying to find ways to bring visibility to problem solving.
0: Yeah, excellent for folks who aren't. Super familiar with value stream mapping and and that whole practice. If you have a quick overview for those folks that they can use to
1: then go find more. Sure. Value stream mapping was the exercises that maybe organizations might do once a year, often done on a board with post-it notes and string and whatnot to identify all the activities that occurred in the value stream to deliver that value. And it would track how long things took. And then the outcomes of these often two to three or more day longer events would be ways to improve efficiency. With Dice stream management, our sessions now are continuously bringing visibility to the work that's actually flowing through the, the tool sets. And very much interested in making work that sits in wait states visible. Oh, interesting, okay. That's where we're seeing the conflicting priorities and the dependencies and the unplanned work, all these things that contribute to delays and frustration that Mm -hmm. teams are dealing with because you're working on something and you'd like to make progress on it, but then you got to put it on hold because of dependency. And then sometimes by the time you get back to it, it, you know, knowledge work is perishable. So by the time you probably moved on to the next thing already, and by the time you get back to it, you got to wrap your head around it again, and it just contributes to things taking longer.
0: For those kinds of teams, is it for things that like you have to like request a ticket for? Or are they just waiting for other folks to do their work to complete?
1: Are there lots of places where where that stuff hides? This is really interesting because a lot of times we start working with teams. It's just the development team, but most of the time the bottleneck isn't in development. The bottleneck is way upstream, working, uh, waiting on triage, waiting on funding, waiting on approvals, waiting on all these upfront gates from PMO or on, on you know business side. Or the bottlenecks are at the other end, waiting on release, waiting on UAT. And so then moving from making the development teams work visible to trying to expand that shift left, shift right, to get a much bigger picture so we can truly see where we need to focus, because it doesn't do any good to try and optimize these teams locally and to focus on making development faster when the bottleneck is upstream, waiting on design or waiting on requirements or whatever. And that's probably one of the biggest insights that we see. It's a theme that we're seeing, especially with large enterprises. We work with a lot of Fortune 100 companies, so really, really big companies, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it doesn't, it doesn't help. Really, like one small gear is working very, very fast and everything it plugs into is stuck. It's just sitting and
1: waiting. Yeah, it's, it's common. I mean, there are wait times within, you know, engineering and development too. So we bring visibility to that. But then trying to get visibility across the different parts of the whole product We talk a lot about moving from project to product, Mm -hmm. from work that is managed by projects that tend to have a lot of ramp up and and ramp down time that increase coordination costs versus managing work using a long standing product team of professionals where you don't have all these, air quote, interchangeable resources that are running off to their next project and they don't have you know, now they're doing two projects at once or more. Or a shared services team, which is supporting many different other teams. So they're not dedicated. So if they're supporting many other teams and they're highly specialized or have a lot of expertise, the question is, what's the probability of those experts being available when you need them? Mm-hmm. So managing work by product reduces that a bit somewhat. If you can add a designer to a product team that is supporting that product, then we know what are developers waiting on? Yeah. Are they waiting on wireframes? Mm-hmm. Do we need to hire more developers or do we need to hire more designers and bring designers onto the team so there's less wait time on wireframes? So questions like that. Yeah. To get into the weeds with. A lot of companies don't seem to really know where their bottleneck is. Yeah. They don't have visibility on it. So bringing that to the forefront, they may have a an idea. Some people on the team know. Mm-hmm. But in order to get buy-in and support and really affect change at a level that's going to be useful, but you not know, the product level, is going to require some expansion of that visibility so that we can see yeah. where the bottleneck is. When you say visibility, like, is that going to be something different
0: for every organization? Are you creating reports? Are you like doing other sort of summaries for folks? What makes things visible for the organization?
1: For us, it's the, their tool sets and their okay. work items. So mm-hmm. their stories or their tickets, if they're in a the ticketing system or their... How does work arrive in an organization? How do people find out about it? What is the artifact? What mm-hmm. is that thing that people are, you know, who is it assigned to? Where are the comments? Where is the status of this item? Which is usually in a tool set. It could be in a spreadsheet, could be in a Slack channel, could be mm-hmm. in an email. It's all over the place. So when we talk about making that kind of work visible, it's having a process, for lack of a better word, where people who are impacted actually have visibility. You know, when we were all working together, if everybody was co-located, a physical board worked pretty good in a lot of cases because you had no constraints. Every tool has some kind of constraint that you got to work around. But now, because we want to automatically capture the metrics and the data and have dashboards so people can see what their flow time is, they can see what the throughput and the capacity and the efficiency is, then automatically pulling that out of people's different tool sets. Um, that's what we're talking about with visibility of the work items in the tool sets mm-hmm. that the teams are using and also the metrics that will automatically come out of those, those tools to see how they're doing so that they can improve their decisions. I'm really curious,
2: Dominica, you know, you were mentioning a couple of times how when we were all co-located and a lot of people were working out of offices or hubs and having all those visual cues to rely on for how things are happening. What are some of the more creative ways that you've seen people kind of adapt to and work around that? Because I feel like everyone's doing something different, right? I've been
1: using a lot of mural lately.
0: Okay. You
1: know, there's mural and there's Miro. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm sure, you know, lots of other visual, virtual tools. And I've seen myself and my team, we've gone really from a PowerPoint presentation world to a mural or virtual whiteboard world where we can draw whatever we want. It's it's a white canvas that we can build out with all kinds of logos and images and characters and drawing tools so that we can help people see like, what are we actually talking about here? Oh, well, and that you can invite other people to join your mural. So you can invite your teammates or your customers. They don't need to Subscribe or register. You can just send them a visitor link and get other people in the mural doing all kinds of things, like even just introducing yourself. You have sticky notes on this virtual whiteboard of all the people that are in this workshop and what their role is and how we used to have. We always just have a parking lot for questions. Oh yeah. sure, yeah, yeah. You put a parking lot up yeah. on the board and then you. Go we'll go do workshops where we're doing a variety of different ways to sort of expose pain points in the organization and inviting participants to add what prevents their team from getting their work done to different sticky notes, and what are your customers grumbling about? And what are some of the causes of these issues? And we just build upon these exercises. and And it's all visual on a virtual whiteboard that you can save and later send it to other teammates use as a kind of a historical reference going forward. See if mm. we're improving or not.
0: That actually sounds more handy than the traditional one. So you've got to be able to share it. You're not
1: taking photographs of it and uploading them to the wiki every couple of days or whatever, you know? Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. You
1: can just download them as, Uh, PDFs or PNGs and pass them around. And, you know, we've gone back for companies that we've worked with for a long time. We've gone back and looked at those original outcomes of those workshops to help, again, provoke necessary conversations for change.
0: So what kind of goals are folks setting when when you're hoping to help them? Like um, we recently talked with the Google Dora folks about the, the goals of the DevOps report and the, their metrics are deployment, right? Like how fast is your code getting into, into actual production? Like what kinds of things are folks hoping to improve when, when they're doing an exercise like this?
1: Trying to reduce their web, trying to okay. improve or bring visibility to the cognitive overload on the teams who are just slammed with way more demand. And they have capacity to do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's a big problem. Everybody's overloaded. Well, most people that I talk to are really overloaded. They have a lot of high seasonal demand, particularly this time of year. Insurance companies have their open enrollments. Oh, sure. Retail companies have their Cyber Monday and Black Friday. Although that's becoming not as specific day driven, but still this time of year. So the seasonal demand is, it really takes a hit on a lot of these large organizations who are already overwhelmed. And if they're going through some kind of transition or transformation where there's buy-in from leadership to do a transformation or a transition, yes. they're going to fund it. They've got budget for it. And now it's like, go team, go. But if the team is already overloaded at 100% capacity utilization, and now you're going to throw something new on top of that, it's absurd in a lot of ways because now people have to learn a new way of working, Mm -hmm. a new tool set, a new process, and they're already scrambling to keep up on top of the demand. Uh, Occasionally I run into organizations. Some teams have a leader gets it and so their team has a much more balanced amount of whip compared to Mm -hmm. capacity which is such a delight to see it's like wow what a difference and how many people want to be on that team sure everybody
0: right yeah yeah. Yeah. you do this work across lots of different industries right you mentioned retail and and insurance like it sounds like there's lots of digital
1: process yeah Mm -hmm banks, automobile industry, insurance, retail. Yeah, it's a pretty big list. Yeah,
0: and the pandemic has stretched on. Have you seen more demand for this kind of analysis of work or has it just been steady since before the the pandemic started?
1: Well, we see a lot more demand at Tasktop. The product that I work on is called Biz it became general availability just about two years ago. And so it's just growing almost exponentially with the number of clients. So there's that. As far as in general, from a pandemic sense, I do think that the rate of change in technology is difficult for humans to, sure, yeah. to keep up with. I mean, wor- workers are just utterly overwhelmed and ill-prepared for, for mm-hmm. the future. And a lot of companies are, are struggling right now. I mean, we're heading into some trying times with, the, you, you know, there's all this geopolitical uncertainty and, and inflation and energy descent and climate change. And yeah, on, on top of this pandemic world, I mean, the probability of having a steady process or... A steady state I think declines dramatically and I see teams having goals of striving to implement standards and these best practices when yeah. I think that it's we need novel ideas to yeah. uh, we need to sort of embrace the edges and the fringes of what we need to do to change and adapt for things going forward and One of the things that I kind of maybe bark on a little bit is that I'll be in a workshop and we're bringing visibility to all the work that's in the backlog or all the work that is in progress that hasn't been touched in 100 days or or 180 days. And I'll say, like, just get rid of it. If if it hasn't been touched in 60 days, do you really need that? Can that work be deleted after you socialize that? Or at least archive somewhere. And people will tell me, well, but, you know, we need to have a list somewhere. Like someday we might, we might need that. And my, my response to that is I try and be really polite, but do you really have the luxury of continuing to work in this manner where you're going to hang on to things for a really long period of time when your leadership, your customer, Pain points are clearly that things need to move faster. yeah, to improve customer satisfaction. And like you're saying about
0: cognitive load, like I feel Sisyphean. like you feel like you're never going to make a dent in those massive ancient backlogs. and as you're peeling back all those tickets, it's like an archaeological expedition. It's like why did we even make the decision to put this in the backlog in the first place? The people who requested it are no longer even with the organization. Like and things just live there forever till they become legendary. Like some open source projects find this kind of amusing where you have like this one ticket that sits out there and it becomes like part of the lore that like, you're never going to do this thing, but it's always there to reference. And I like the backlog bankruptcy kind of idea of just like dumping all that stuff.
1: I used to do this exercise weekly where I would query the old show me the oldest ticket in a system the one that hasn't been touched in the longest number of days and then I would send an email to the originator of that I said ticket but work item feature request whatever Mm -hmm. the demand is and I'd send a email to the the creator of it and to it was currently assigned to this is now the oldest request in the system can we meet for 10 minutes after our stand up and talk about this. And I would try and facilitate this conversation. And what I discovered was a lot of these items had a lot of baggage and conflict between the creator and whoever didn't approve it or approved it or, and, and whoever it was assigned to. So it's a little bit of like therapy and facilitating a conversation about is this still a valid, from a business perspective, is this still going to deliver business value, define what value was for them to facilitate this conversation? And and I found out a lot of the times just bringing a few people together to have this conversation allowed us to close that ticket or that feature request or whatever it was.
0: Wonderful feeling, yes.
1: Yeah. Oh, it is so great. It's like, it's like... Finally checking something off the list because it's like that broken toaster that just sits there and you look at it and you need to fix it or or whatever. It still consumes, even though if you're not actively working on something, it still consumes a bit of mental capacity in your brain yeah, or like the there. closet yeah. that you need to clean or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is that you got to walk by and see it and... Feel ugh, I got to deal with that. Once you cross that off the list, it's. I think it must trigger some serotonin or something. Feels good. Yeah,
2: and it's like you were saying, right, that there's so much else going on in the world around us that everything just feels one item and one task can feel so much bigger than it has to, right? And so I have to imagine that when you can say, oh, this actually isn't important, it can be deprioritized, or it can be shifted in a different way, that the relief is probably 10 times what it used to be, right? This is for me. (laughs) Awesome! Like it's all
0: super helpful. One and one of the questions we like to ask folks on the on the show is it is there a, a favorite myth or a, a one that you love to debunk with folks about stuff like this? Is there a thing that, that keeps coming up and you feel like you have to keep explaining to people for these kinds of projects?
1: Yeah, there's a couple things. One would be best practices. That term for me is like uh, fingernails on the chalkboard. And I'm always a bit skeptical of best. Practices, uh, because teams will strive to implement them. But I want to remind people to really understand that best practices are based on people have, have having experience doing that, of knowing causality, knowing cause and effect, and that your best practice today is probably going to be usurped by better emerging practices tomorrow. Because of the rate of change, rapid change, and the need to move forward, that that isn't going to be a best practice for very long. I think that the best skill set—well, shouldn't use the word best there. There's a lot of good practices, and that a good skill set that you can have is is learning how to be very resilient and and work to um, keep pace with an ever moving fringe, ever, ever moving mm-hmm. way of, of working. And that I think we need diversity in different ways of working. And if we get caught up with this idea that there's a best practice, there's a best way of doing things, then other ideas appear to be incorrect. And I think that's problematic in a period of time where we don't always know the effects or the causes that are going to occur.
0: It becomes its own kind of red herring that, that folks get attached to it. Even if it isn't maybe the right thing for that for that moment.
1: Yeah, it's just, you know we're we're dealing a lot of complexity right now, so it's important for there to be diverse thoughts and different perspectives that those don't get shut down and to um, for those to be heard as acceptable for consideration, and that some people have a lot of energy and and passion for that, and that and that's a good thing. We need to embrace some new ideas and not have all of our eggs in one basket 100% investment and in one area is risky. So yeah. um, I do agree there is a place and a time for best practices, but <clears throat> we don't need a best practice for everything, particularly not now. We, we don't live in a static world. Yeah
0: so your current
1: project that you just wrapped
0: up, you're telling me it, it just it just got released as the the, the the day that we're recording this is a new immersion course with the folks at IT revolution. And uh, why don't you tell us uh, about that before we wrap up for today?
1: So the emerging course is based on the book, Making Work Visible, Exposing Time Theft to Optimize Work and Flow. And I'm taking each time (laughs) fee and presenting the why, the what, the how, and exercises to go along with that. And it has new information because I'm working on a second edition of Making Work Visible that's coming out. And so some of the exercises that are in the immersion course that weren't in the first edition uh, are going to show up in the second edition. And I'm tackling some of the more common problems, the more trickier um, issues that come up. Like, like for example, the you know, we talk about limiting WIP. Well, that. It's good. We need to limit our whip. We need to tackle cognitive load and the stress that comes from it, and the psychological safety that we get when we have permission to say no. We don't have capacity to take that on right now, or, or, if, or if yesterday's priority one is no longer today's priority one, then what? Which thing should we take off of our plate? Mm-hmm. The thing is, though, is we can reduce, put our whip limits wherever we want, but when the calendar has back-to-back meetings on it all day long, I call it the all-day cram calendar yes. or the triple book wham calendar, and the meeting invites are coming from leadership or bosses, and they, they just get overlaid on top of other meetings. Like, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the all-day cram um, calendars? Because people need to have dedicated time during business working hours to do their very most important work
2: yes they don't get
1: their very most important work done during the day when do they do it they they're doing it at midnight or sunday afternoon and over the long haul it's that's not sustainable absolutely absolutely you're risking a
0: lot of burnout yeah overloading folks with with extra stuff Excellent. Well, we will put a link in the show notes for folks who might be interested in joining your course and checking out some of the other excellent resources at IT Revolution. Those folks over there, as well as your your book. We'll be excited to see the second edition when it comes out. Uh, That'll be
1: great. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Can I say one more thing? Yeah. Yes. Final thoughts. That'd be great. One thing that I wish I knew more about when when I wrote the book, is just how important vision actually is our eyes are the only two parts of the brain that sit outside of the uh, cranial vault outside of the skull and so they're directly connected to our nervous system and it's why vision isn't just about shapes and colors and it's more than shapes and colors it is how we sense where we are in time and space and how we sense our safety. Our vision has everything to do with our psychological safety and feeling okay and our nervous systems and our hormone system and and impacts dopamine levels and serotonin and adrenals and epinephrine. And so all the more reason to... Bring more attention to vision and visibility. And it's why I believe people are so burned out with Zoom fatigue if they're on virtual meetings where people don't have their cameras on when they're speaking. Like if I'm trying to do a workshop with a group of 10 people, nobody has their cameras on. It is really hard to, especially if you don't have any, like if you have a previous relationship. With somebody and you know them, it's like a phone call and you already have that trust built in. But if yeah. you're meeting people for the first time and not be able to see them, but yet you're trying to have this intimate conversation with them about their workflow and how to make right. improvements, then it's, ex- I think it's one reason people are exhausted at the end of the day of all virtual meetings by being up so up close to people. But yet not being able to see their facial expressions, or to see if their head is nodding that they agree with you, or whether they're rolling their eyeballs or whatever it is—it's just—it seems inhumane uh, to me. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah. Yeah, but I do understand how how it's also just weird to see yourself on camera all day long. Like that's not normal either or natural either. But I think we could have a few things in place, like if you are speaking, maybe you could turn your camera
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Like the, the past couple of years as we've done engagements and, and conferences and things like it, it's a whole lot of, of talking to yourself and, and, and definitely feels that way. And for some inside baseball for our listeners, our recording software recently added the nice feature that we can actually see people on these calls as we're doing the recording even though we don't record the video which has been a huge improvement i will say for actually putting these episodes together it makes things much easier yeah. so yeah. Well, dominica thank you so much for joining us today okay. been it's so wonderful nice. to catch up with you likewise all right we will be back in a couple of weeks and uh i'm not sure what we've got coming up next but that'll be fine uh, so, we are signing off this week's Page to the Limit, and we are wishing you an uneventful day.
2: That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making the podcast possible. Remember to subscribe in your favorite podcatcher if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number 2. Thank you so much for joining us and remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.